So this morning we look to Matthew chapter 25, and we look specifically to verses 31 to 46. So Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. And uh, this morning we will, uh, we will look to the final judgment, the final judgment from our Lord Jesus. Uh, I'll read the text and then we'll go ahead and explain what it means. So Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right hand and the goats on the left. And the King will say to those on His right Come you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. As we look to this text, we look at the, in a sense, the final prophecies and the final uh, discourse from Jesus directly in the sense of dealing with the multitudes around him, dealing with the multitudes impacted by his own earthly ministry, uh, but these are kind of the last judgments that he's rendering against them as we reach the end of his earthly life in the passages that follow. Because immediately what follows are the plots themselves against Jesus the Christ. And so when we look at what Jesus is ultimately concerned with, he's concerned with judgment. He's concerned with judgment. And he's concerned with that judgment as it impacts those who are uh, to be distinguished as outside of his kingdom. And so this certainly, this text, this judgment that he speaks of certainly ties to what comes before uh, because he has been making those distinctions all the way since uh, the very inception of his ministry, all the way since uh, when we began to proclaim this gospel of Matthew uh, and to learn of it on Sundays. We have been looking at not only the life of Jesus the Christ, we have certainly been looking at that and him being pronounced as king, but we have also been looking at the distinctions that are made concerning who belongs to his kingdom and who does not. Even all the way back 
to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist baptizing uh, those who uh, were to be uh, citizens of his kingdom and repelling those who were not citizens of his kingdom but wanted to be baptized nonetheless. And so throughout this particular context, what Jesus is referring to, what he's testifying about, is uh, the context of his coming. He's dealing with his coming. He testified that the disciples needed to be prepared. That's what the previous text deals with as it relates to uh, not only the parables, but the question that they ask uh, in Matthew chapter 24 in the beginning verses, uh, particularly verse uh, 2. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 3. And so essentially what Jesus is doing here is he's walking his disciples through not only their need to be prepared, but he's walking them through uh, an end times timeline, an eschatological timeline. And he's giving them a roadmap to not only see when he's coming, but to see that there will be judgment uh, for those who do not obey him. And at first, he spoke parables to them. He spoke parables uh, not only to the multitudes, but he spoke parables for different motives and different reasons to his people. He spoke parables to, to his people to give them a true understanding of the kingdom. And that's what he has done in the past few verses that we've been looking at uh, throughout chapter 25 in the parable of the talents and the parable of the, bri of the bridegroom. But in all the parables and everything that he's saying, he's further explaining the answer that he has for the disciples as they asked him a question in Matthew 24, verse 3. He's essentially uh, gone beyond answering that question and explaining the reasons for his answer. But now what Jesus points to, as we even look at the timeline, he's pointing to here uh, the end of all things. He's pointing to the end of all things. That would be... As the millennial kingdom comes to an end, he's now dealing with that which takes place as it relates to the eternal state. He had already preached preparation in the previous verses, the need to be prepared, the need for the people to be prepared. And he already has, within his parables, demonstrated that he is the Son of God. He's done so throughout the very course of his earthly ministry to this point, but also in the judgments that he spoke of, as well as the things that he has explained. He's testified to being the Messiah throughout the duration of his whole ministry by signs and wonders, by miracles, by the parables. But here, his call is to be alert. His call is to be alert. And now what comes then is the full unveiling of the event for which the disciples were to be alert. So Jesus' call is to be alert. And now he's about to unveil why it's necessary to be alert. So both the immediate two parables build to this verse specifically. So when we look back to what we've explained concerning the last two parables, specifically, they deal with what takes place in this particular verse itself. And yet all three accounts are related in that each of them tells us where there will be a division in the kingdom. So each of them are related to one another because they demonstrate that there's going to be a division in his kingdom. Essentially, not everyone will be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Not all who live upon this earth belong to the kingdom of God. And certainly in the timeline and the history that we're looking at uh, in the historic sense, uh, in, in this time in Israel's history, not every, uh, not every Jew uh, 
uh, will belong to the kingdom and certainly not every Gentile. And so there is a separation. There's a separation. There will be a separation among those who do not belong to the Messiah and his kingdom. And there's also a separation for those who actually belong to the Messiah and his kingdom. And so what we call this then is the final judgment. It's the final judgment. And so we look at verse 31 as it begins that way. For he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. So he's talking about an event that is a final event. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. This essentially is the realization of all the promises, of all the covenants, and specifically one that we have in mind based on what he says next, the Davidic covenant. It's why in the beginning of Matthew, he's called the son of David. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. He will sit on his glorious throne. It also shows you that Messiah is not presently sitting on the Davidic throne, but he will sit on the Davidic throne because he's given you a sense of the events. He's, he's given you a sense of eternal decrees that will take place in the temporal sphere as it relates to natural life. So just as the promise was to that was that the son of David was to sit on the throne forever, this is that moment. This is that moment. And it's that moment whereby all the nations in verse 32 will be gathered around the throne. Because he says so before, uh, he says so in the passage before us in verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him. And then what will take place is a separation. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so before the eternal reign of Messiah, there will be a separation. There will be a separation. And it will involve all the nations, just as was promised in the Abrahamic covenant. It is why when we began to embark on teaching and learning about Matthew's gospel, we started with the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant in our series. But all the nations will be gathered around the throne, some waiting for ultimate blessing of being gathered to Christ forever, and others will be separated from him forever unto eternal punishment and eternal fire. And as I mentioned, this event, this gathering of all the nations is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Because here you see the nations. You see the promise that was rendered to Abraham of a people, a future people, a posterity, an ultimate seed that's coming as the Messiah. One who will belong to God and a people who will belong to God and Christ. Comprised of not only the nations, but specific families within those nations. Not every single individual, but the elect. And so here you also see how the future nations will gather around the ultimate seed, the son of Abraham. And so this is identified even in our scripture reading this morning from Genesis chapter 49, the, the, uh, the lion from the tribe of Judah. That is Jesus the Christ. 
But these nations are not simply gathered together as some confederation, as a forbidden confederation of men, as we have seen in the judgments rendered in Genesis chapter 11 against those who gathered in Babylon. But this is a gathering unto commendation and condemnation to affirm those who belong in the kingdom and to condemn those who do not. And so they are before the one who sits on the throne. And it's amazing how scripture weaves together and testifies to its own truthfulness even as we go through uh, the gospel of Matthew. Because remember in Matthew chapter 1, when Jesus is introduced prior to the genealogy after him, it says, and he is called the son of David, son of Abraham. This is essentially telling you why. Why that's the case. Why that name. Why is he called that and the purpose for which Matthew wrote down uh, by the inspiration of the divine author and under the power of the divine author what he did about Christ. This final act to which we refer, even in verse 32 and 33, it becomes apparent to you that it's not only for all the nations to worship him. Many people skip to that point. But before all the nations gather around and worship Christ, there must be judgment. There must be judgment. There is, in fact, first judgment. Because as they gather before him, the text doesn't skip to the worship. The text, the text immediately goes to, and he will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. We are, even in the time in which we live, in the world in which we live, we are in the middle of a war of deception. A war of deception. People believing that they belong to the kingdom when they do not. People saying that they belong to the Lord. People saying that they follow Christ and they don't. In a world that simply hates Him and wants to redefine what it means to love your neighbor, to love Christ, to love God. And the remedy for deception is not any political process. The remedy for deception is the return of Christ. When Christ comes, he's going to end the deception. And he's going to end the deception for the people who are deceived. Because if they don't know now where they stand, they will know at the time of his coming where they stand. When he returns, people will know whether they belong to him or not. And the people around them will know whether they belong to him or not. And so there will come a time of separation. But their nature is evident. Their nature is evident. And we'll see that very point as we unpack the few verses ahead of us. But there is a judgment. There will be the separation of them from one another. So before there's a separation, technically speaking, from the Messiah, there's a separation from one another. Because you have a conglomerate of individuals who are gathered together and both, as, you, as you'll see in our text, are proclaiming Lord is Lord. And they're saying that uh, they are following him. And they're saying that they're worshiping him. And in the context of our passage, you have those who are upholding apostate Judaism and saying they belong to the God of Israel. And then you have Jesus' disciples who are upholding what he has taught and saying they belong to the God of Israel. And so the war is not between people who say they belong to Satan with their mouths, and, uh, and those who say they belong to God with their mouths. That's not the war. The war is between two groups of people who are gathered together 
and are saying that they all belong to the God of Israel, that they all belong to Christ. So that's what's under judgment here. And the distinction is, of course, in their nature. And that's what the separation is going to be. The separation is not about their deeds. The separation is according to their nature. The deeds simply testify who they are and who they serve. So the separation is between the righteous and the condemned or the unrighteous. Verse 33. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. The sheep will go to the place of prominence, to the place of airship, and the goats will go to the place of punishment and condemnation. And if you notice what is said next, as I read it in verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice that the sheep are already commended. They're already commended. They are already marked off as those who belong to the kingdom. These events do not explain the false deeds of works righteousness. In other words, what follows is not what people must do for one another to be commended by God. Rather, Jesus commends his righteousness and his elect, and they did particular deeds to their brethren others who belong to Christ, to demonstrate that they were faithful to Christ. And their love and care for one another also demonstrated that they had received mercy from him toward them. And so this passage is certainly about uh, God distinguishing who belongs to him and their deeds testify that they belong to him. But it was he who gave them the deeds it's he who gave them the nature to perform the deeds, and it's he who commended the deeds that they did in his name. So he's the source of everything that's happening in this particular passage. If you look at verse 35, he gets to the deeds. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And then the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. Even the least of them, you did it to me. What you see here, they did particular things to the body of Christ that demonstrated their absolute love for Christ. So you have those who love Christ doing things to those who also belong to him. And I'll tell you why that's important in a moment. And in doing these things, they did them to Christ within them. So Christ dwelled or indwelled these individuals. And so to do something benevolent on uh, or to these individuals was to do something benevolent to Christ himself. Loving one another, honoring one another, sacrificing for one another is an act of worship toward God in as much as 
each other belong to God. And so there's all kind of motivations and agendas that men use to treat each other well, even if they're using the name of Christ to do so. But the honor and benefit of that is not because of what you and I can gain by advantage. It's we're doing it because of Christ in them. That's the reason that you do the things you do toward believers. It's because of Christ in them. It's not because I can climb the ladder of corporate pragmatic, uh, uh, pragmatic ascension into some role or function in the church. But it's because Christ lives within that person. And so I must treat Christ with the honor and love that is worthy of his name. This goes a step beyond the doctrine of God, uh, of, of, of man uh, being created in God's image. But they did particular things to the body of Christ that demonstrated their love for Christ. They acted in love, as you can see from our passage, love, loyalty, compassion, and faithfulness to one another. And they did it to fellow brethren. This was to fellow brethren who belonged to Christ in saving faith. They loved the Christians. They loved being in the company of the Christians, and they loved serving the Christians. Truly, and we have said it even in the context of the epistles, one test of knowing whether you belong to the kingdom of not before this eternal state will be established is, what do you do with the Christians? How do you deal with the true Christians, those who confess and honor and love the Lord Jesus? What is your motive or motivation to serve them and to honor them? How do you treat the Christians? How do you love the Christians? And so that is a certain mark of one who either belongs to the kingdom or not. A lot of men this hour can mention the name of Jesus Christ and literally treat Christians as if they're the scum of the earth. Those individuals are not Christians because it's how you treat the Christians. Do you enjoy the company of those who have Christ within them? Do you love those who belong to Christ? Do you long to be with them, not only... Not only in some generic, esoteric way, but throughout the duration of your week. Do you long to be with the Christians? Do you long to spend your time amongst those who love Christ and have Christ within them? That is the mark of being a Christian. Because then what follows is you begin to do things that demonstrate you want to love not only them, but Christ within them. And so there's this lavish sense in which they did all these things, not only to meet needs, but they did these things because they understood that Christ lived within his Christians. And it drove them to act. It drove them to act. But what this verse is not doing, this verse is not praising general philanthropy. It's not praising general philanthropy. It does not exalt the false social gospel which has reemerged in society today, which ties compassion to a sense of internal self-righteousness, a photo opt. Let's go visit people in prison and take a photo, write an article. This is not about doing deeds so that the individual can be commended to God. This is not what this passage is teaching. In fact, we see these individuals on the positive sense in verse 34, are already marked off for the kingdom. So it's not like they can do deeds 
that add to some sense of God's commendation upon them, it is they are commended by nature. They are commended by nature. And so their deeds to fellow believers, because that's what's in play. You, you have believers treating fellow believers a certain way. Their deeds to fellow believers demonstrated that they were faithful and loyal to Christ. And notice something. It's not because of personal benefit. Because look at where they're going. Look at who they're doing these things for. They're going to prisons. They're feeding the hungry. They're visiting the sick. Not quarantining the sick. They're visiting the sick. They're not distancing themselves from faithful believers who are in prison due to, in this context, tribulation events or otherwise. But they're going to them. And they're not trying to win them to some societal change in which their rights will be recognized and they won't go to prison. Better health and they won't become sick. What they're doing is they're going to them where they are. And they're saying, we're honoring Christ within you no matter where you are. And so there's righteous deeds that they're doing because they see Christ within them. Their deeds are testifying that they're faithful and loyal to Christ. And it's very simple. They're feeding believers who need to be fed. They're clothing believers who need to be clothed. They're giving drink to believers who were thirsty. And they're visiting believers who were imprisoned. Again, this isn't a means to make their name great. This isn't quote-unquote American Western Mercy Ministries. This is people who are going in a very calamitous and dangerous situation to their fellow believers who are suffering for the consequences of being in Christ and in His kingdom. This is the treatment of fellow believers, true professing Christians, showing to us it's a treatment of how individuals would treat Christ. So many today want to make the comparison of how the world treats each other. And therefore the world would treat Christ that way. I'll do you one better. How the confessing church treats her Christians is how they would treat Christ. Because that's what this verse is teaching. And so many today are saying they belong to Christ. And they literally treat the Christians as if, as if the Christians are evil. As if the Christians should be regarded with suspicion. That's how they would treat Christ. That's how they do treat Christ. Because Christ is within the Christians. And so to those who love and honor Christ, there's a reward. They will be rewarded with eternal fellowship and the eternal inheritance of his kingdom. And Jesus, in a sense, marks off what he's saying after the king gives his answer for his reward. He says, even the least of them, you did it to me, in answering their question. The least of these is not a societal group. It's not a political constituency. It's not people who are born in the inner city, and they're the least of these, and they're our political constituency, and so we have to go to them in order to win the vote. That's not the least of these. Because these aren't natural, earthly, political, uh, agenda-driven items. We're talking about the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God. And so in doing so, we're not talking about political systems. The least of these are the elect of God. 
Because they are the ones who the world regards as fools. They are the ones who the world sees as, if you're going to be imprisoned for something you did, then you're a violator of the law. If you're hungry, it's your fault. If you're poor and impoverished, it's your fault. And I'm talking about those upon whom the world system has attacked in this era in which we're referring to. But the least of these are always the elect of God. They're the believers. The least of these are true believers. Those who belong to Christ in a given society who are neglected by those who belong to Satan. That's what the distinction is in this passage. And this neglect and rejection of them goes right down to their basic needs. The reason they end up in this situation is because false teaching and false teachers have had their way and have spiritually drained and financially drained the people to the point where they can't have their basic needs met. I'm referring to not only first century apostate Judaism and that which took place in many of the false religions of the Old Testament, but also the effects of that and the many who build upon Pharisaism this hour. That it's the same thing, and thus the least of these becomes the Christians. Why? Why am I saying that they're these people? Why am I saying that they're the elect? Why am I saying that they're joint heirs? Because Jesus says it. He calls them brothers of his. They're his brothers. And this was not general, good old, western social media charity. It was what Jesus essentially saw in them was himself because he saved them. He purchased them. He redeemed them. They were elected unto salvation and they were joint heirs of his kingdom. It was taking intentional care of those who not only bore the image of God, but specifically each one of the least of these were the elect of God in salvation. And this is not saying that every Christian is imprisoned, impoverished, hungry. This isn't some sense in which you have to self-deprecate your work ethic in this world because you have those who are in that lot and those who go to them and care for them. So there's even a distinction in the kingdom of God. It's not, it's not communism. What this is, is it's a theocracy. And it's a theocracy that shows God is the head and you have people who have what they have by his grace and they're able to provide for those who do not have as a mercy toward them because they see Christ within them. Jesus says it this way as we reach close to his mock trial. The poor you will always have with you. Judas had the other view of this. But they were brothers of his. They were the elect. But for the other group, because there is another group, it was not so. It was not so. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they, will, then they themselves also will answer, and listen to the deception in this. Lord... That's where they start. Lord, 
as if they identified with him. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. They were cursed. The second group was cursed. They did not care for those who belonged to Christ and saving faith. Instead, they neglected them. They were powered by the love of money. They were powered by false teaching. So much of what the Gospel of Matthew says, says it about them. And by a deep-rooted hatred for Christ. And so they rejected those for whom they were supposed to care. They rejected them. They didn't care for them. They rejected them. And this is a long indictment. As their pattern for this level of rejecting God and those who entrusted to him is persistent. It happens so much over time that it ends up and culminates in judgment. And here specifically in our context, Jesus is speaking about the Jews. He's speaking about them specifically because he's speaking about uh, about those who are within the context historically of where he is. Now, chronologically, he's dealing with kingdom things. He's dealing with the end times. But situationally, he's dealing with those who erected a form of religion that was not only powerless, but it took advantage of those they were supposed to care, uh, care for. This indeed has overtones of the second giving of the Mosaic, of the Mosaic Law and of stipulations in Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verses uh, 17 and 18. And I want to read that to you because this is essentially what Jesus is appealing to. We'll start at 16 and it says, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Look at this. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food or clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So he's appealing to their salvation, their redemption, their mercy as the means to show mercy toward others. It's not simply what they have that should motivate and stimulate them to have compassion for those around them, but it's who they are. It's their nature. Deuteronomy is talking to that generation who was supposed to be a testimony, who was supposed to go into the promised land, and who was supposed to demonstrate that Yahweh was king over them and that the king had certain requirements of the people and how they were to relate to other people. But this generation had long ago rejected the law of Moses in favor of their own traditions and their overall traditions of men. They despised the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they assaulted the promised one of the new covenant. 
This is to whom Jesus is dealing with in this passage and speaking to. And so in their neglect for the covenants, they neglected the source of the covenants and neglected those who belong to Yahweh. And that all takes place in our passage in verses 40 to 45. It is why he says what he says. And in saying what he says, the final judgment is they belong to the devil. Not because they failed to visit the imprisoned, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome strangers, or failed to care for the sick, but because they failed to embrace those who were in need and who belonged to Christ in salvation. And those very particular acts point to the whole. And instead of embracing them, they erected a, a system to exploit them and to lead them into judgment. And he's specifically dealing with those who held sway over the multitudes who did the same. It's the leaders and the people who failed and who failed to obey. So according to their nature, which was reflected in their lack of deeds, they were sentenced to eternal fire and eternal punishment. This sermon is not about going out and visiting people in prison arbitrarily, going out and feeding people and somehow believing uh, all those acts and the other acts will commend yourself to God by righteous performance. Because no one is righteous and no one understands and all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. But what this is saying is that the people who love the Christians do for the Christians because not only their motivation but the effect also is that they see Christ in them. That that's why they do what they do. Because they see Christ in them. That's the motivation. That's why they do it. And I'll tell you, this hour, because this judgment is going to come, this hour so many are falling into scandal and Ill, Ill repute because their motivation, even for being attached to the so-called church, was never because they saw Christ within God's people. They saw something for themselves. And by speaking things that they saw maybe in the Bible or by speaking the name of Christ, people would be surrounding them. And so they fail and they, and, they, and, they, uh, and they fall because they don't see Christ within the people. Instead, they drive out Christ's people and gather around themselves goats. And there's so many men today who are placing the goats on the right and the sheep on the left. And this should come as an indictment not only to the Western church, but the worldwide so-called church at large. Because it's happening. But here the distinction is very plain. The distinction is plain and the judgment will be perfect. It's as plain as the king makes it. For he says, truly I say to you that the extent you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. They failed to embrace those who belong to Christ, so there's consequences. On the other hand, there's reward for those who embraced the ones who belong to Christ because they saw Christ in them. The distinction is made plainly. The king makes it plain. And these two groups are understood in this way. One failed to embrace the king through his subjects by failing to demonstrate faithfulness and care toward them. Toward them. All day, people 
sing, talk, teach, preach about being faithful to Christ while abandoning faithfulness to those who have him in them, the Christians. And we see that there's no dichotomy in the sense of what Christ is doing in his work of salvation between the, the, the Christians and himself. They're joined to him. The distinction in deity is certainly, is certainly there. The distinction in function is certainly there. But as it relates to how Christ sees the Christians, he sees them as his body. It's why he said to Saul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting who? Me. Why are you persecuting me? The other group, the sheep, and I hope this is an encouragement to you, the sheep succeeded in demonstrating faithfulness and compassion toward those who actually belong to Christ and saving faith. And so the sheep in this context were rewarded with eternal life because of how they cared for the Christians, because of the love they had for those who had Christ in them. And so this is the nature of the judgment. And we see very plainly with this passage, it is not that which is earned by their works. It is given to them by the gift of salvation, and thus the kingdom is their reward. Notice here the timestamp. The timestamp of these events as we close in verse 34. Look at when this is said or look at when this is done. The king will say to those on his right, look at this carefully. Come you who are blessed of my father. Look at this. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What sets this up is that all of this is fixed by divine, eternal decree. This passage is dealing with the things that Jesus concerned himself with as his earthly ministry was coming to a close. Do you know what he was concerned with? Not only the kingdom, he was concerned that his disciples and the people who would uh, be Christians uh, after uh, this particular era, that they would know divine election, that they would understand divine election. Because that keeps people from deception. You want to fight the war successfully, the spiritual war successfully against deception? You have to understand and know and live as though divine election is true. You have to. Because that's what Jesus was concerned with. That there was a kingdom to be inherited that he had established, the terms he had established before the foundations of the world. And that they're fixed. And so we see in this passage not a distinction between those who did good things and those who did bad things. We see the distinction between those who were determined to be righteous and those who demonstrated and were wicked and demonstrated wickedness by their deeds. The distinction then is between the righteous and the wicked in judgment. Let's pray.